Hello, friends, and welcome to this first ever episode of the Dustcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring the ancient Hebraic context of the Bible. I uh, began to be interested in the ancient Hebrew worldview going on 15 years ago, probably, when I was in college, and one of my professors made a comment, I think it was just sort of in passing, that our modern Christian conception of the soul is often more Platonic than it is Hebraic. That is, it comes more from a Greek philosophy or Greek worldview than uh, a truly biblical one. And in such, it is, it's more dualistic, where we tend to separate our ideas of the soul and the body, as Plato did. And the Hebraic worldview that you find in the biblical text is actually more holistic. And I didn't know what that meant at first, but it intrigued me. I had been sort of a philosophy geek, and uh, pretty much all philosophy that we study is Western philosophy, going all the way back to the Greeks. And I didn't really know a way to further explore what Hebrew philosophy might be. So I think it sort of got stuck in the back of my mind for a while, uh, and I forgot about it, to be honest. But uh, later on in life, I was able to actually travel to the Holy Lands a couple of times, and I learned so much there about the historical context. I was amazed at what the geography and the culture, and just being in that linguistic context, uh, could reveal uh, that that was new to me about the biblical context. And so I tried to start figuring out how can I can I learn more about Jewish philosophy, so to speak, uh, which really doesn't exist as such, uh, at least if we talk about ancient Jewish philosophy, the, the time that the Bible was written. Uh, the Hebrews didn't do philosophy in the same way that the Greeks did, um, but my studies eventually uh, got me into... Uh, any sort of research that was available about the ancient Near Eastern worldview. And while it may not be philosophy per se, the way that we're used to thinking of Western philosophy, you can learn quite a bit about how the ancient cultures, both uh, the Jews uh, in Israel as well as the surrounding cultures of, of Egypt and Babylon, viewed things. And so that has really become a passion of mine and something that that I hope uh, to share with a broader audience. Um, So I thought maybe I should start out by telling a little bit about why I decided to call this the dust cast. Um, I think dust is a a metaphor that can be used in a lot of ways as we look at the Bible. But the original idea really comes from an old rabbinic saying, um, actually probably goes back even prior to Jesus, the, the person that it is attributed to, Uh, lived a couple hundred years before Jesus uh, when people weren't really called rabbi as an official title. Um, So this comes out of the Mishnah, which is the earliest part of the Talmud. And actually one of the very earliest parts is a book called Avot, uh, which means fathers. This is the sayings of the fathers or the wisdom of the fathers. And Avot chapter 1 verses 4 says, Let your home be a meeting place for the wise and powder yourself in the dust of their feet, and drink thirstily of their words. And that says a lot about the ancient Jewish culture uh, that has really turned into rabbinic Judaism. I I mentioned that at the time people weren't necessarily known as a rabbi as an official title, sort of the the way that 
we know the term today. Uh, but there were these sages that would travel the land of Israel and teach uh, and grew into what we now know as a rabbi. And of course, the roads back then were largely unpaved and people wore sandals and your feet would get dusty. And the images of this wandering itinerant teacher coming into a village and someone would open their home to to them, um, much like Mary and Martha did for Jesus. And I, I think it's amazing that Mary, as a woman in that culture, was able to sit at Jesus' feet and learn as a disciple. And so uh, people would gather around as the disciple uh, would sit in front of the sage or the rabbi, uh, and the, the teacher would sit and teach. And the idea was to be so close and so dedicated that you were covered in the dust of their feet. And perhaps it even referred to disciples that would travel along with their rabbis. And as you walked along the dusty roads, uh, the rabbi would kick up a cloud of dust as he walked, and the disciples who were following closely after him would get covered in dust that way as well. And so I've, as I've sought to understand that culture and that world more deeply, I've often wondered what would it be like to sit at the feet of Jesus and to listen to his words as a first century disciple heard them. Can we really understand his language and his culture and his context enough to hear it with fresh ears the way that his disciples did the first time. By following Jesus and listening to him pray and hearing the way that he interacts with the scriptures and allowing ourselves to be simply powdered in the dust of his feet, can we understand how he lived out his faith, how he displayed his trust in the Father and showed grace and mercy to others, and the ways in which he brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. And could we emulate his faith as we walk along with him? And so that's really the mission of this podcast. And I thought today I would start out looking at even a slightly different metaphor for dust. If we go further back in time, you know, all the way to Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so if we kind of leave behind just for just for a little while, the idea of covering ourselves in the dust of a rabbi. I think that the word dust can also be an apt metaphor for our mortality, referring to the fact that we're made out of the dust of the ground, that our bodies are dust, and that we often, as we pick up our cross and follow Christ, have to come to grips with our mortality and our own limitations. And this metaphor of dust is used throughout the Old Testament, and, and sometimes in very positive ways. Uh, a verse that I love is Genesis 28, verse 14, where God is renewing his promise to Abraham. And I often think of the verses where Abraham is told to go out and look at the stars, and that's such a romantic image to us of trying to count the stars. But here in Genesis twenty-eight fourteen, God says, 
your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. But if you go even further into the Old Testament, you still see this tie back to the original concept in Genesis of our mortality being tied to the fact that we are of the dust. And as we try to really understand that ancient Near Eastern context, what did the Hebrews think of the body and the soul and what was their conception of man? It can be very different than our own. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a difficult book, a philosophical book in many ways, but can seem very dark to us as, as the teacher struggles with his view of life. But one of the things that we see where he's reflecting on mortality is in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. He says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And that's perhaps the most open-ended verse about the afterlife in the Old Testament, in the whole Bible, that really doesn't give us any answers. But can we know? Can we know about the nature of a man's soul and what happens after this life? I think that we can, but I think that the Hebrew conception of body and soul is very different than how we may be accustomed to thinking of body and soul in the more Greek philosophical way. We often think of our souls as being our true self that is immortal and that continues forever. But is that really the way the Bible talks about it? I remember a, a sermon a little while back. I was sitting in church with my son, who was seven at the time, I think. And uh, we were talking about God's view of mankind, and it was a very positive, you know, very uplifting sermon about how God has plans for us and how we're the pinnacle of his creation. But at one point, uh, the preacher said something along the lines of uh, that humans are the only creatures God made that were given an eternal soul that would continue on into heaven. And when I heard that, based on some of the research I've done into the ancient Near Eastern context, I questioned that view of the soul a little bit. But when I looked over at my son, he was crying. And you have to understand, he uh, has a very tender place in his heart for his dog, Blondie, a dog that we got from a shelter. We think she's mostly Belgian Malinois, but she's a a mixed breed. And uh, what had struck him was the idea that his dog didn't have a soul and wouldn't continue on into heaven with him. And so I wonder, do dogs have souls? 
And I don't know. I don't think the Bible tells us. But but if we go back into that that Hebrew context and, and what the worldview really was at the time, I think our sharp break between animals and mankind, where we have a soul that we think will continue on into some spiritual heaven, you know, that we will be a disembodied soul up with the angels in the clouds, so to speak, is not the best way to understand the biblical worldview. And I think that it does matter as we think about what God's big plan for the world is. So if we're going to ask whether dogs have a soul, I think we have to start by asking whether humans do. And I know that may be a surprising question even to ask, but hang in there for for just a minute with me. Um, If we dig back into the ancient Hebrew words, there's really two main words in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that get translated as soul or spirit in some of our translations. They are nefesh and ruach. And the first, nefesh, is often translated as soul, but it's often also translated as life. You see both of those pretty frequently. And I think that life is really a much better translation of the original meaning of nefesh, as I understand it. Um, Sometimes in English, we use the word soul in a more colloquial way that really just means a life or a person or an individual. And I think there's ways that that perhaps you could translate nefesh in, in that way as just uh, you know a person or an individual, the way we might say there wasn't a soul left in the empty building or something like that. But I don't think that it is really appropriate to use it in that more platonic sense of an immortal spirit that exists independently of the body. One of the verses where I, I think it's actually most interesting to see how you could translate nefesh is Leviticus eleven, uh, sorry, Leviticus seventeen verse eleven which says, for the nefesh of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your nefesh. So I left that original word in there twice. Uh, If you look at a lot of translations, uh, I'll use the ESV, for example. I love the ESV, and one of the things that I love about it is that it typically translates the same word uh, from Hebrew or Greek in the New Testament into the same English word consistently so that whenever a certain Hebrew or Greek word is used, you get the same English word and and you can notice the the themes and the trends. But in this sense, the ESV actually translates nefesh within this one verse two different ways. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. So it translates nefesh the first time as life, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. But then it translates it the second time as souls, to make atonement for your souls. But it's the same word both times. And I really think this is reading later theology back into the verse in a way that it wasn't there originally. We tend to think of atonement as being for our souls, But the life uh, translation really makes more sense here in both places. Uh, It's a duality, a repetition that's being used to make the point, I think. Uh, The connection between blood sacrifice and our lives. The verse is saying, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it 
for you on the altar to make atonement for your lives. You can see that nefesh means life with its association with blood. Uh, The Hebrews didn't think that some spiritual soul lived within the blood. They thought that the life was in the blood because it's obvious uh, to anyone in an ancient context that when you draw blood, often life is lost. Life is in the blood. And you can see this in, in other verses. Deuteronomy 12 verse 23 is a good example where it just simply says the blood is the life and their life is nefesh. The blood is the nefesh. But if we insist on seeing nefesh as a soul, you would have to say that animals do have souls because if you think back to that verse in Leviticus, it's the animals being sacrificed that are said to have the nefesh in their blood. And it's also worth uh, noting that Actually, the first four occurrences of the word nefesh in the Bible refer directly to animals in the creation account. Genesis chapter 1, verses 20, 21, 24, and 30. So let's turn for a second look at the, the other word, the Hebrew ruach, which can be translated as spirit, wind, or breath. It is the ruach of God that hovers above the waters in Genesis 1 verse 2. And as opposed to nefesh, which I think is best understood in terms of physical life, I do believe that ruach is appropriately understood in spiritual terms in many passages. But do humans have our own spirits? Do animals? I I think it's complicated, but I think sometimes the Old Testament verses can be rather surprising to us. Uh, So first of all, ruach is clearly referred, used to refer to all life, both man and animal, in at least some verses, like Genesis chapter 6, verse 17, or Psalm 104. But when you really dig into it, what's interesting to me is that some verses seem to imply that neither man nor animals really have their own separate spirits, but that we're all animated by God's spirit. So, for instance, if you look at Psalm 104, verse 30, it says of God, When you send forth your spirit, ruach, they are created. So the idea is that when God sends forth his spirit, we are all created. It's God's spirit. Now, you could think that perhaps God's spirit is creating our spirits, but if you then look at Job chapter 34 verses 14 and 15. I think these are really fascinating. It says of God, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit, ruach, and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So if God should decide to gather back to himself his spirit, then we would just turn to dust again. It's as if it's God's spirit that is continually animating us, that we are being sustained minute by minute by God's breath, by his spirit, by his ruach, and that if he should take it back, we really are just dust at heart. And so if we go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, we read, 
and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit, ruach, returns to God who gave it. So again, you get this idea of the combination of dust and spirit together, but that when we die, the dust returns to the earth and the spirit returns to God because it is his spirit. It's almost as if in some mysterious sense we are borrowing God's spirit to animate our bodies of dust so long as we have the breath of life. And I admit that that's a little strange, but I think the point to me is that we are not immortal. We are fully dependent upon God's spirit to sustain us each moment. And without God, we would cease to exist. To believe that we possess immortality within us as some intrinsic characteristic of ourselves is, I think, vanity beyond what the text will bear. Okay, and so then, what of the New Testament? The word that gets translated as soul in the New Testament is psuche, which is a Greek word that Greek philosophers did use to refer to an immortal soul in more of the sense that we're used to using it. But the main question in my mind is, in what sense would Hebrew and Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christians in the first century have used that word, suke, when they spoke Greek to communicate the message of the gospel? And I think there are verses that would support a translation of just life rather than soul. Um, for instance, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 20, or chapter 6, verse 25. But rather than dragging us through an even deeper word study once again, I want to just focus on one, one chapter for a second that I think is really the most thorough explanation of the nature of our hope for eternal life in the whole New Testament. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul has been building up through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, uh, through more and more important issues to kind of this crescendo in chapter 15 that is the heart of the theology that I believe he is trying to communicate matters to the life of this community that is falling apart. And Paul's not writing theology just for theology's sake, but he's writing a letter that matters to the people that need to hear it. And when he talks about our hope for eternal life, he makes no appeal to immortal souls at all. Paul says that if there is no bodily resurrection of the dead, then we have hope for this life only. He says that we are men of dust and that our perishable, naturally animated bodies will die but that because of Christ's bodily resurrection, we too have hope of resurrection. And then our bodies will be transformed into imperishable, spiritually animated bodies. And so then, where does that leave us? Perhaps my son's dog, Blondie, doesn't have a soul, but perhaps I don't either. We are creatures of dust, sustained by God, and we will die, but we can trust in future resurrection and transformation. Looking back at the Old Testament just for a second, I love the way that Isaiah says it in chapter 26, verse 19. He says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, 
You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And so I guess I'm trying to argue for a more holistic view of who we are. That we're not just some immortal platonic soul that is temporarily trapped in a body that is fundamentally bad and that we will leave our bodies behind one day, but that we are all of this together, dust and dirt and bone and spirit and heart and mind, all rolled up into one being. But does that nuance of understanding what a human is really matter in the end? I mean, does it change the big picture of what we think God is doing? And I think it does. I think that God's plan for this world is bigger and more glorious than perhaps we're used to thinking about it. The gospel is not just the individual plan of salvation where we can hope to get afterlife insurance, where we can trust that our souls will be taken away to some distant heaven one day, but it is God's plan of redemption. The gospel is the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Israel, how he was born and lived and died and was resurrected so that we too can have hope of resurrection and so that the whole universe can. I love it the way that Paul words it in one of his other big letters, um, Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 19, Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then if you look forward to Revelation, at the culmination of all things, Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You see, we worship the Creator. God made this planet. He made the cosmos and everything here on our earth, the oceans and plants and birds and Belgian Malinois, because He loves them. And looking at everything that He made, all of creation together, He declared it very good. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. I used to think that it was that God looked at each thing he made throughout the six days of creation and called them good. And then he looked at man and called them very good. But that's not actually what verse 31 says. After he's created all of it, God looks at the whole creation, the way that it functions together, and declares it very good. And now the whole world is groaning because of human sin. And my son's dog, Blondie, groans alongside all of creation as they wait for freedom, glory, and redemption. And our God is making all things new. 
in his creation will praise him for it. All right, well, that wraps up our very first episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and visit me at theduskcast.com for show notes. Uh, Look out for future episodes. If you like what you hear, leave a review uh, and shoot me some comments. You can also email jason at theduskcast.com. Thanks, everyone. Bye.